tonight, last uh, night of Vacation Bible School. Thank you for being here this week. Wouldn't be the same without you, that's for sure. But uh, uh, praise the Lord for the book of Colossians. We're also going to look at Philemon tonight. There's 25 verses there, so lots of wonderful things to uh, consider tonight. Uh, Let's pray together, and we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name, the freedom to do so, and uh, we're blessed, and we thank you for that. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Just awesome to think about Jesus, who he is, and what we have in him. And I just thank you for this little book of Colossians, which emphasizes those truths. So, Lord, as we come down the stretch in Colossians and and get into Philemon, a sister letter. I just pray that you would bless our time together, cause it to be fruitful. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are on page 115, and we are still in Colossians, emphasizing the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And we're going to pick it up midstream, as we have to do. And that's at the bottom of page 115 at Colossians 4.13, which says... <clears throat> I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Of course, he's talking about uh, Epaphras uh, and the zeal that he has for them. Uh, Great zeal is better understood as painful toil. Uh, In view here is intense prayer to the point of anguish for these these churches. Let's go to the next page, page uh, 116. Um, We note uh, those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis... uh, Close, fairly close cities. Uh, Skip that next sentence. Epaphras had a special interest and prayer commitment for all these churches. Because they are so close together, it may well be that he planted all these churches, or at the very least was building into them in a big way. So uh, here's an example where you have a couple of churches not too far apart, and uh, he's praying for both of them. Uh, verse 14, Luke, uh, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas are all three evidently Gentile in background. Earlier he's mentioned three gentlemen who were Jewish in background. And so we think this is the uh, Gentile representation. We find here that Luke was a doctor and Paul had a special love for him. Luke accompanied Paul on his second and third missionary journeys as well as on his voyage to Rome. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, accounting for 28% of the New Testament, which is a greater percentage than any other New Testament writer. That's pretty significant. 28% of the New Testament. We usually think, well, Paul wrote all those epistles. Yeah, some of them were fairly short, like Colossians, for example. Uh, Luke was kind of long-winded. You know, I kind of think I like this guy. He was, uh, you know, Luke is not 24 chapters, Acts 28 chapters, long books, But uh, praise the Lord for them. And Demas. Demas greets you. Now, let's talk about Demas. He's mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's named as a fellow laborer of Paul in Philemon 24, which we will look at later tonight, Lord willing. However, here he is just mentioned as sending a greeting. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, the last letter that Paul wrote, what did he have to say about Demas? Not good. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas has forsaken me... Having loved this present world. Wow, that's not a good note to go out on, is it? I hope that will not be said about me. Uh, you know, Dwight was doing great, but he has now departed the saints and gone to, where'd he go? Thessalonica. Anyway, Demas is one of those guys that has a cloud hanging over his life. Uh, where was he really at with the Lord? He abandoned Paul at the darkest time of his life when he really needed him. Paul was in prison, awaiting to be executed, and Demas just leaves him there. Talk about heartless. Paul says the reason he left was because of his love for the present world. Now, some have compared Demas to Judas. I don't know if that's fair, but they have. Jesus had his Judas. Paul had his Demas. John MacArthur writes, Anyone who has been in the ministry very long has shared in that heartbreaking experience. That is not necessarily a reflection on one's own ministry. However, it is comforting to note that even the two greatest leaders the world's ever known, Jesus and Paul, had those who failed them. That can be kind of comforting sometimes, right? Uh, MacArthur had in his experience what they call Black Tuesday. I don't know if any of you follow MacArthur very closely, but uh, he had a situation where they were having a staff meeting and he was expressing his appreciation for these men and his love for them. 
And they said, if you think that we uh, love and appreciate you, you got another thing coming. And a mutiny broke out where they were trying to overthrow MacArthur. Well, at the end of the day, MacArthur survived it. They all didn't. But, uh, you know, it, it happens. It happens. Was Demas truly saved? Well, the truth is we do not know. Uh, whereas John Mark clearly came around, we don't know that Demas ever did. It ends on a sad note and one that is somewhat open-ended. We really don't know where he was at or where he ended up. What a tragedy. There are many folks in this camp. Uh, they are workers in the gospel ministry for a time. But somewhere along the line, they bailed and forsook the ministry and the saints for the love of the world. Are they saved? Who knows? It's very questionable. God knows, and we must leave it with him. Uh, but what a terrible thing to be in the camp that is unclear and questionable. To not have a clear testimony of allegiance to Christ and his people is tragic. I think you can write tragic over the life of Demas, wherever he was. And God alone is the final judge. Page 117, uh, Colossians 4.15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Uh, skip that next paragraph. Who was Nymphus? Well, the Greek here is unclear. Uh, some manuscripts have it feminine, others masculine. We don't, therefore, know whether Nymphus was a man or a woman. Uh, but it is clear that the church met in this person's house, which was probably located in either Laodicea or Hyopolis. Uh, for the first three centuries, the church met in houses. Persecution did not allow them to meet in buildings like we do now. Uh, this is a good reminder that the church is not a physical building. Rather, it's an organism composed of people, that is, believers in Jesus Christ. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. Uh, it was used generically of a group of people assembled. However, when applied to God's people in the New Testament, it refers to those called out of the world and now a part of God's forever family. So we were all in the world here and we've been called out. We have responded to God's call and we're called out and we now belong to a special family called the church, the called out ones. Note there at the end of that paragraph. So technically, when the New Testament uses the word church, it always means the people and not a building. Not a building. Now, we're thankful for a building to meet in, even a prospective new one, right? Even a little bigger one. But the building is not the church, the physical building. The church is the people. So, um, you know, people talk about, you know, Lord, uh, we've come into your house. No, the Lord has come into his house. We are his house. We are the temple of the living God. Uh, we are the building of God, as it were. This is just a, you know, a place. There's nothing sacred about this place. Uh, you know, it's not the temple in the Old Testament. Um, God dwells in his people. Uh, Colossians 4.16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Obviously, the Laodiceans had received a letter from Paul, as had the Colossians. So he tells them to swap letters for maximum spiritual benefit. The problem is we have no letter to the Laodiceans in our canon of Scripture, right? I say, turn to the book of Laodicea. Where do you go? Uh, you say, no, I don't have that book in my Bible. Uh, so what's the explanation here? Well, number one, there were certain letters that Paul wrote. This is, there's a couple of possibilities uh, that were lost. We see one that he wrote to Corinth. It's lost. And as such, God and his sovereign superintendent did not intend for them to be part of the canon. They were helpful letters at the time, but not part of the sacred canon of Scripture. Number two, many think that the letter referenced is actually the epistle of Ephesians. And there are good reasons to think this might be the case. I think that is probably the case, and I make an argument for it here. But we're not going to go through that since we don't have time for that tonight. But you can read it there. I give about six or seven points. Uh, let's jump down to Colossians 4.17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Wow. Interesting statement. Uh, Philemon 2 seems to link... Uh, Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus as a family, as the church met in their house. Aphia evidently was the wife of Philemon, and very possibly Archippus was their son. We don't know that for certain, but it seems like they're all in the same house, and this is probably a pretty good guess. The language here does not seem to be that of a flat-out rebuke. It's directed to the church to say to Archippus. 
this would seem to indicate that Paul is exhorting the church to encourage Archippus in his God-ordained ministry. So the church was to encourage Archippus by saying, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, we are not specifically told what his ministry was, but many commentators think that Archippus may have taken over the pastoral ministry in lieu of the fact that Epaphras, their pastor, was now in Rome in prison with Paul. Somebody had to take over. And it seems like maybe he had stepped into that role and it was recognized by the church that this was uh, the God-ordained ministry for him. Uh, Jump down under the uh, quote uh, from the evangelical commentary on the Bible. Whatever the specific ministry in view, both Archippus and the church knew it, and they knew God had placed Archippus in that servant role. As such, it was a stewardship responsibility before the Lord. This was not simply a job he could take or leave. This was a job God gave him to do. His responsibility was to fulfill the assignment that God gave him. Well, I take that personal myself. Uh, there's no doubt that God placed me in the ministry and placed me right here at Southview. I've often said, I don't want to stay any longer than God wants me to, but I don't want to go before God wants me to either. And if you kind of think maybe I should move before I'm ready to go, uh, maybe we need to take that up with God. Uh, God needs to have his way. And he will. And he has. Uh, note at the bottom of the page, there's always pressure to quit. Every pastor I know battles discouragement. It's a challenge. Page 119. Evidently, Archippus was feeling that, you know. (laughs) I feel like quitting. And he said, don't tell him to quit. Tell him to fulfill his mission. By the way, it seems like this this is kind of hard on uh, premature retirement, too. (laughs) Just talking. Anyway, page 119. It is challenging working with people, being being criticized, trying to help people get along, so often uh, seemingly being ineffective, not being appreciated, etc. No wonder so many quit. The devil does all he can to cause God-called servants to quit. Just remember the devil always wants you to quit. If God has ordained your ministry, it's always too early to quit. What God wants you and me to do is fulfill our ministry. In order to hear his well done, we have to finish the work he gives us to do. Okay, let's jump down under the references there, middle of the page. Ministry is not easy. It is hard. That is why God's servants need to be reminded and challenged to fulfill their calling. The ministries we have are from the Lord himself. And it's always too early to leave the post God has called us to unless he himself removes us from that role. And then, of course, we just want to be obedient to what the shepherd wants us to do uh, in, the, in the flock. Colossians 4.18. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Now, Paul commonly, it seems, used a secretary when he wrote his letters. And then he would sign off personally to authenticate the letter. And evidently, he had you know, bad eyesight, it would appear. And evidently, signed off it with large letters. Uh, why he did this, we are not specifically told, but Galatians 4.15 hints that Paul may have had some sort of eye problem. Um, other possibilities there too in Galatians, but FYI there. Remember my chains. As Paul goes to sign off, uh, the clanging of the chains probably was heard, and so he writes, remember my chains. Back earlier in 4.3, Paul requested prayer for an open door for the word. That was the prominent prayer request. His number one concern was for the ministry of the word. But now at the end, he does imply a prayer request about his prison confinement. So Paul asks that they not forget about him and keep him in mind in terms of what he's going through. And then he signs off with the customary grace benediction, grace be with you, amen. In a word, grace defines Christianity. Uh, Both salvation and sanctification are all about grace. Grace means God's unmerited favor, uh, God's gift. Uh, Okay. Let's go to Philemon, shall we? Let's go down the page to page 121. So we want to cover this tonight. And we're going to switch to Philemon. Uh, Forgiveness that leads to reconciliation. Forgiveness. What a wonderful theme. Uh, We all need forgiveness. And we all need to forgive, right? Nope, I guess not. Anyway, yeah, we do. Introduction to Philemon. Philemon is a sister book of Colossians. That's why we're studying them together this week. They are both part of a quartet known as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. We believe that Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all carried by Tychicus on the same journey as he delivered the mail for Paul. Date written probably somewhere between 60, 62 AD during his uh, first Roman imprisonment. Uh, Theme, forgiveness and reconciliation. 
Forgiveness and reconciliation. Always relevant. Always. Recipient, Philemon was evidently a wealthy businessman who lived in Colossae. Onesimus had been his slave. Onesimus evidently had stolen some things from him and had absconded to Rome, where in the providence of God he met the Apostle Paul and was converted. He immediately became an asset to Paul, but now Paul is sending him back to his master Philemon with this letter. This letter is a brotherly appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus in the name of Christian fellowship and love. It appears that both Philemon and Onesimus were converts of the Apostle Paul. Theology. Jump down to the middle of the page here. Theology. Both the law of love related to forgiveness and reconciliation, as well as the doctrine of imputation, meaning to put to one's account, are beautifully portrayed in this letter. So we have a beautiful picture of, of forgiveness and reconciliation uh, in terms of our relationship with the Lord being, being pictured here. Towards the bottom of the page, the paragraph just above the uh, first verse there, Philemon is about Christianity and shoe leather. No matter who you are, I can assure you that issues and situations will arise from time to time in your life. And as a Christian, you will have to deal with forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a sure thing. Uh, That is why real life lessons of Philemon are so vital, so very vital to our spiritual lives. So let's get into it. Philemon verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Next page, page 112, top of the page. This introduction is uncharacteristic of Paul. Normally, he introduces himself as an apostle with a tone of authority. But in this case, he simply introduces himself as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When churches are in view in his writings, Paul normally emphasizes his apostleship. But this is a personal letter to a personal friend who already knows his position backwards and forwards. So Paul is not writing with a strong tone of authority, which in this case was already clearly recognized, but rather with the tone of brotherly appeal. This is significant because the whole letter is framed with the tone of appeal rather than dictating in a forceful, authoritative manner. There's a very important lesson here. Uh, This letter is a model on how to approach and handle a delicate situation where what is called for is gentle persuasion in keeping with brotherly love rather than a forceful spirit. There's tremendous wisdom here in the spirit, I think. Um, Skip that next line. Uh, Note Paul's mindset here. He does not see himself uh, as a prisoner of the Roman emperor. He has committed no crime. He is in prison because of his stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Uh, Go to the next paragraph. We see here that Paul had great faith in the sovereignty of God. He doesn't say, I ran into a patch of bad luck. Uh, He doesn't blame people. He simply sees himself in the will of God and thus as the prisoner of Christ. Christ has put me here. That's a great perspective. And next uh, paragraph, Paul is acknowledging the difficult situation God has sovereignly placed him in, knowing that uh, what he is about to ask Philemon to do was not necessarily easy either. In effect, Paul is laying the groundwork of tactful persuasion, which shows that God sometimes asks us to do things that are not necessarily easy, but we need to submit to his lordship anyway. And so uh, he says, and Timothy, our brother, Timothy was especially close to Paul, And he was there at this time. He's a brother, fellow member of the family. Uh, Jumped down under the bowl there to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Paul begins by expressing great appreciation for Philemon and his family. He literally calls him the beloved one. From the start, Paul expresses love. His whole appeal in the entire letter is is, uh, couched in love, wrapped in love. Next paragraph, he also refers to Philemon as a fellow laborer. So they they were in this great work, this great gospel work together. Verse 2, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, and our fellow soldier, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Again, the name Aphia is a feminine name. Older manuscripts literally read to our sister Aphia. Next page, page 123. Many commentators think that she was probably the wife of Philemon, and Archippus was his son, their son, because they're linked together, as I've already said. Uh, This may or may not be the case. We can't be absolutely certain, but it's probably a pretty good guess. Archippus, our fellow soldier, at the end of Colossians, Paul exhorted the church to say to Archippus to fulfill his ministry in the Lord. Remember, we we just covered that at the end of Colossians. 
Uh, here he's addressing him again in this letter. And he calls him here a fellow soldier. Uh, emphasizes this man was in the spiritual war zone with him. Uh, next paragraph. All of us are in this spiritual war zone, but Paul, as believers, but Paul consistently highlights the battle, especially in relation to spiritual leaders, and especially in relation to the local church context. They, in effect, are the front lines, and Satan is especially interested in taking them out. Uh, you can be sure of that. Um, middle of the, of the page in the bold there, and to the church in your house, the letters addressed principally to Philemon, but also, if properly understood, to his wife, Aphia, and son, Archippus. Next paragraph. But Paul also addresses the church. Because of the nature of the situation, they too have a vested interest in what is happening. This is now a family matter involving the whole church. Uh, skip that next paragraph. The word church is literally called out ones. This term can refer to the universal church. But of the 114 times it is used in the New Testament, 90 of those times it refers to the local church. So I really want to underscore this. Functionally and practically, the emphasis on the New Testament church relates to the local church. For example, people are not accountable to the universal church, right? It's not the universal church that does a discipline. Rather, the local church. Human leadership is not a reference to the universal church. Unless, of course, you know, you've got a large denomination. Uh, no, it's, it's not New Testament. Uh, human leadership is not a reference to the universal church, but rather to in relation to the local church. That's where we have the elders. The one another passages underscore body life in relation to local churches, not in relation to the universal church. So if people are really going to be obedient to a huge part of New Testament teaching, they have to be vitally plugged into the local church. This is what God is doing in the world today. Uh, I've got a couple of slides here. <clears throat> Uh, scriptural church, we got the universal church, the whole big picture, the whole family. <clears throat> and when is the family all going to be together for the first time in the history of uh, the world? Well, at the rapture. At the rapture, uh, the dead in Christ, in Christ is a church phrase. Those who have died uh, in Christ since the day of Pentecost, until that time, they're going to be the first to be resurrected. But then we who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. We'll all be together with the Lord. That's the universal church. Uh, all who belong to Jesus Christ during the church age. From, from the day of Pentecost when God started the church sending the Holy Spirit until the rapture. Everybody that's a part of that. And some of the churches in heaven now. Those who have died, that's where they are. Uh, their soul and their spirit's in heaven. Bodies in the grave awaiting uh, the resurrection. But, um, so you got the universal church, the whole big picture. But then there's local churches. And they're all autonomous, as we find in, in the scriptures. Uh, we don't see, you know, this big denominational funnel where everything's tied to some mother church out here. Uh, that's not what we find in the New Testament. Christ addresses the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. All independent, all giving account of what's going on on the scene there in their local churches. So all of these local churches are a part of the bigger picture of the universal church. Like I say, functionally, what we have in the New Testament really addresses what's going on in the, in the local churches. Okay, I guess I got another slide here. <clears throat> Examples of the universal and, lo and local usage of the word church. Jesus, I will build my church. Universal, the whole thing. Paul, to him be glory in the church. The universal. Church of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. Uh, Hebrews. Local church, Jesus says, uh, and by the way, Jesus uh, addressed the church twice. Once in Matthew 16, once in, in Matthew 18. And once he addressed the universal church, as we've already noted in, in Matthew 16. And once he addressed the local church in relationship to discipline. Uh, Jesus, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Matthew 18. Luke, when they had appointed elders in every church. That's local churches. Acts. Paul, the churches of Christ salute you. Uh, Romans 16. So we see both of these concepts in the scripture, the, the universal as well as the local church. All right, down to the bottom of the page, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Next page, page uh, 124. Grace and peace is Paul's standard greeting in all of his epistles. Grace is always first, grace is the root, uh, and peace is the fruit. Grace is the means. Peace is the result. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor. It's a gift of God. Peace is shalom, God's blessing that, that all is well. 
By the way, the grace and peace greetings from Paul are a constant affirmation that God has extended and is extending grace and peace to his people. It's an ever-present reality. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, I wonder what God's attitude is to me today. Is it wrath and damnation? Uh, Wrath and damnation to you, this letter. No, no, no. It's always grace and peace. That's always God, what God is uh, affirming uh, to us as his people. It's an ever-present reality. Uh, skip the next paragraph. Note, grace and peace are both from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This puts him in a position of equality. Verse 4. <clears throat> I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. So following the introductory greeting, Paul immediately affirms his thankfulness to God for Philemon. He loves Philemon and is thankful for him. And that is reflected in the fact that he is continually praying for him. Verse 5. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. The hearing here probably refers to the report that Epaphras has brought to Paul as found in Colossians. There's a grammatical challenge in this verse. The consistent logical order in the New Testament is that faith is first and then love flows out of it as fruit. But notice how he says this here. Hearing of your love and faith. Uh, come down to the bottom of the page. Uh, Homer Kent kind of gives us a, a summary explanation. The best explanation understands Paul's thought as moving from Philemon's love to his faith in Christ that prompted it. And then he comes full circle and completes the reference to love by naming its immediate object, his fellow believers. Okay, page 125. Consistent Pauline usage and consistent New Testament theology show... The emphasis here being Paul's thankfulness for Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus and his love for all the saints. Consistently, the New Testament emphasizes faith as being in the Lord Jesus. Lord means master, God master. Jesus means God savior. The angel said his name would be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Uh, Skip the next paragraph. This would be a reminder that Jesus was the Lord of Philemon. This is significant, especially in this context. Remember what Paul had said in the sister book of Colossians? Remember back what he said there uh, to masters who, who have slaves? And he's addressing this issue about his slave who has run away. And he said there, Masters, give your bondservants, that is, slaves, what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, this had a direct application to Philemon on how he should treat Onesimus. Uh, so the mention of Christ as Lord, uh, Lord Jesus here, would again remind Philemon of who Jesus was to him. He's his master. He too has a master. All believers in the New Testament are referred to as saints. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. There's no in between. Uh, The word saint is related to a core root word meaning holy or set apart. Saints are holy ones, set apart ones. Positionally, we are saints. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 126. When Paul speaks of the love Philemon has for all the saints, he is probably, he probably largely has in view his gracious acts of hospitality as seen in the fact that the church meets in his house. Paul builds on this as we move into verse 8 or verse 6. In verse 6, Paul now gets to what he is praying about in verse 4. We have an interesting and delicate combination in commending Philemon and yet at the same time subtly challenging him. He's very tactful in how he does this. There's a lot to be said for winsomeness and tact and graciousness and gentleness. We see that here. Philemon, verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may, may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. This is a really wonderful spiritual challenge. Uh, skip that next paragraph. Paul is praying that Philemon's Christian fellowship may become even more effective. Next line. Uh, Next paragraph there. Really, where Paul is going with this is the challenge that his fellowship of faith may include Onesimus. The whole context of the letter speaks to this fact. The fellowship of Christian faith that is effectively lived out is one that forgives greatly and restores accordingly. This is what Paul is specifically praying about for Philemon. Notice he says, uh, Every good thing which is in you refers to the life of Christ, to the character of God, which is now in Philemon and all believers. The good that is in us is 100% of God. Next uh, paragraph. In other words, what Paul is praying for is that Philemon would know Christian fellowship in a very powerful way 
in keeping with a very deep experience of the good character of God. Paul wanted Philemon's life and actions to send out a very powerful message as he forgives Onesimus. That's the point. Forgiveness of a brother in Christ shows the depth of Christian fellowship. It is a powerful thing which the world knows nothing about. To do so is to experience in a deep and full way the very character of God. This is God-like. God's a forgiver. Uh, God lives in us, and this is allowing his life and character to flow through us. It is to work, it is to work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians. Uh, this is a powerful sharing of faith that puts God himself on display through our lives. God is about forgiveness. He lives in us, and he wants us to be about forgiveness. All right, let's go to the verse uh, 7, page 127. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. The we here is evidently Paul and Timothy. Paul expresses great appreciation for Philemon. And uh, skip that next paragraph. Because Philemon's love for the saints has, uh, the saints have been refreshed because of his love. He was like a breath of fresh air. Paul has really built up Philemon. Have you, have you been picking up on this? He's really building him up, leading up to the challenge. He's, like, he's, he's really saying all these wonderful things. About, and say, by the way, I, I've got a little challenge here. He's leading up to that. Uh, so he's leading up to the challenge that he may also be gracious enough to forgive and restore Onesimus. This is where it's all leading. So notice his description uh, of Philemon. Uh, number one, uh, to be beloved, uh, hospitable. In allowing the church to use his house. Having faith in the Lord Jesus. Having love toward all the saints. Having every good thing in him. A cause of great joy. A cause of consolation. Comfort. Demonstrating love for the brethren. Refreshing the hearts of the saints. Boy, how's that for an impressive resume? That's good. This is really good. I like this Philemon guy. He's a guy. If you got to go back home after you've robbed the guy, this might be the guy to go back home to. I mean, he's got, there's a lot of Christian virtue here. Very impressive. Strong Christian character. You know what amazes me is that a man with all these spiritual strengths may still have a hard time with the issue of forgiveness and restoration. It's not a given. Paul is writing so so very diplomatically because this is a delicate situation. Forgiveness is hard. It's one of the the greatest and also among the most important challenges we face as in our Christian lives. Boy, that, that is so true. Uh, Next paragraph, you see Philemon's response of Christian love to Onesimus had the potential to be a powerful testimony that made an impact on that whole area. But it also held potential to be a major blunder that could hurt the cause of Christ should he not be willing to do so. I always think about 1 Peter 4, and he says there, 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8 at the bottom of the page, the end of all things is at hand. You know, that's always true. Life is always brief. We're always on the edge of eternity. Time is short. And he says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Get serious about your prayer life. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. He's talking to the Christians. For love will cover a multitude of sins. How does love show itself? It's forgiving. It's forgiving. Next page, page 128. Love is the defining trait of true Christianity. And one of the clearest ways love is shown is in its willingness to forgive. Unforgiveness is really a lack of love. Skip that next paragraph. Paul loved both Philemon and Onesimus. Both were his converts, so to speak. And he wanted them living in harmony together as brothers. Thus we now see Paul's appeal to Philemon with regard to Onesimus. It's not always easy. You know, as a pastor, I spend a lot of time trying to to work out things between people. And it's, it's sometimes very difficult Right now, I'm dealing with a situation. It's like, I don't know if these brothers are going to be able to work this out. I hope so. You'd think so. Yes. But, you know, it's not just so easy. You just walk up and say, no, I want you both to behave. <laughs> there's a lot of baggage. There's lots of stuff involved. There's lots of history. And there's all kinds of stuff. It's complicated. Life is complicated. People are complicated. Philemon 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, I could do that. He is the Apostle Paul. He could have started the letter out that way, but he didn't. Paul as an Apostle could have ordered Philemon to forgive and restore Onesimus. In in other places, Paul commands believers to forgive each other, right? Yeah. 
It is the proper and right thing to do. So Pauline Christ could have demanded this, but he chose to take another approach in this case. Philemon, verse 9. Uh, verse nine. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Instead of a firm command, Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of love, very tenderly. Probably in view is Philemon's Christian love, which he has consistently demonstrated to all the saints. Skip that next line. He is now Paul the aged. He was perhaps around 60 years old, but he has put hard miles on his body to where he was pretty worn out at this point at 60 years old, right? For Paul, 60 was like probably 80 85. Do I hear 90? I don't know. I mean, it was, it was hard. He put on, you read what he went through in, in Corinthians. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, skip down under the footnote. In addition to appealing to his age, Paul reminds Philemon for the second time that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay, next page. Page 129. And so on the basis of Christian love and from a position of humility and empathy... Paul entreats Philemon. His whole approach is very gracious, gentle, and in accordance with brotherly love. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. Paul is very spiritually wise and mature. He knew that the most effective way to affect spiritual change in people, especially in matters that are close to the heart like forgiveness, is to win the heart of the person. How do you win the heart of someone over? Do you do it forcefully or do you appeal gently? They say that a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. True enough. A person may be forced to do what is proper, but if their heart is not in it, there's still a problem, right? Oh, yeah. Paul is wanting to bring Philemon's heart along in this process. And there's great wisdom here. How is he doing that? He's appealing to him on the basis of brotherly love. Now, every situation is different, and there is a time for sharp rebuke. And we see that also in the whole counsel of God. But there are also many times when the most effective way to bring a person along is through gentle appeal in keeping with love and godly wisdom. How, how do you react if somebody comes to you and tries to totally force the issue? Does that work well with you? Is, is that a good approach with you? I must say it's not the best approach with me always. I, I'm sure my flesh gets in there. You say, well, you are just humble. You're, yeah, I, I, I'm sure I should. But if somebody comes and is appealing to me in love, that's powerful. That's very powerful with me, I think, uh, in comparison to forcing it. Well, uh, verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. This is the purpose of this entire little letter. Whom I have begotten while in my chains. The whole letter has been tactfully building to this point. Here is the purpose of the letter succinctly stated. Paul is making an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. Paul refers to Onesimus as his son, and he reasons, and the reason for this is because he has spiritually begotten him. Paul is the human instrument who led Onesimus to faith, so in that sense, he is his son in the faith. I have begotten is literally I gave birth to. We know it's God alone who gives people spiritual life. Only by God are they born again. At the moment of faith, they are born of God. But actually, uh, giving of spiritual life is God's, uh, the actual uh, Giving of spiritual life is God's work alone. However, Paul repeatedly describes the process of bringing people to saving faith as a birthing process. Uh, What is the uh, human instrument's part in this birthing process? Well, it is sharing the gospel with them. And I outlined that there. Okay, top of page 130. Um, Let's stop there. I'll pray. We'll have a break. We'll come back and finish out the little book of Philemon. Uh, We'll be back at 7.30. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, the study here tonight in Colossians and then into Philemon. We see how they are closely related as uh, addressing the whole situation at at, uh, the church at Colossae. And especially now as we get into the book of Philemon, this this very delicate situation that really affected the entire church. Lord, help us to learn the, the principles related to forgiveness and reconciliation that you would have us glean from the text tonight as we continue on. Bless our fellowship now in the food. We thank you for it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. See you in a few minutes. Okay.
Welcome back to our 10th and final session for the week here. We're going to finish out, Lord willing, Philemon here. And we are on page 130. And let's pick it up at uh, verse 11. Philemon, verse 11. Who was once unprofitable to you, he's talking about Onesimus, but now is profitable to you and me. Paul here testifies to Onesimus' changed life. It is true that formerly he had been unprofitable to Philemon. Verse 18 suggests that Onesimus had stolen things from Philemon and then run off. But Paul says his life is now changed. Now he is profitable to both Philemon and Paul. Conversion has truly changed his life. He went from being a useless fellow to being useful. There's no greater proof of true salvation than a changed life. Note that next paragraph I included here because I like to think I've got a little sense of humor and I like to think that there's a, a defense for it somewhere in the scripture other than Proverbs. But anyway, notice what we have here. We don't see this in English, but Paul, in a winsome sort of way, brings his point across. You see, the name Onesimus literally means profitable. But Paul uses another Greek word for profitable in verse 11. What Paul says is that although useful was formerly useless, now he is really useful. In effect, now he is really living up to his name. And Expositors has a note there. An ancient reader would have thought this play on words much more clever and humorous than we would. That Paul uses it at the beginning of his plea for Onesimus shows us something of his exquisite sensitivity and tact. It's as if realizing the radical nature, in view of the custom of the times, of what he was about to ask of Philemon, Paul deliberately introduces a bit of humor. Isn't that kind of interesting, as far as the play on words, how they probably would have read it and probably understood it, that play on words is, has a, just a tinge of humor and yet is uh, exercising some tact. Well, what do you know? There is a place for proper, well-placed humor in ministry, evidently, if that's true. Verse 12. I am sending him back, you therefore receive him, uh, that is my own heart. So Paul, having led Onesimus to the Lord, is now sending him back to Philemon, and his appeal is that Philemon receive him as a fellow believer. Paul emphasizes just how much Onesimus had come to mean to him as he describes him as being my own heart. It's as if Paul is ripping out his own heart and sending it back to Colossae. I mean, that's a strong statement. Receive him, that is, my own heart. That's his heartfelt commitment to Onesimus. Verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Next page. Page 131, top of the page. Paul explained that he had wanted to keep Onesimus there with him because he was helpful in regard to Paul's prison ministry. In fact, as Paul sees it, Onesimus really was Philemon's stand-in who ministered in his stead. And of course, knowing Philemon's great love for Paul, this would have warmed his heart. Verse 14, but without your consent, he says, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Interesting uh, emphasis there. Even though Paul so very much appreciated the ministry of Onesimus, even though there was such a strong love bond with Paul and Philemon, even so, he would not take advantage of this situation for his own benefit. He would not presume upon Philemon without his consent. It would have been a blessing to keep Onesimus by his side, but Paul in no way wanted to coerce or manipulate the situation to where Philemon felt he had to go along with it. Uh, Come down just above the uh, reference there. There is another great principle here. Christian service and ministry should never be forced on anyone. They should never be manipulated or coerced into doing ministry that is contrary to free will giving. And note the reference there, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. Just a great principle in terms of ministry. You don't force, manipulate, coerce. Uh, notice I, in my illustration there. Uh, several years ago, I was talking to a pastor. He was all excited. Uh, he had been reading a book, and they were bringing out certain manipulative principles by which you could supposedly get your people to give more. I found the whole idea repulsive. I'm glad I don't go to his church. I, I don't like being manipulated, and I don't think most other people do either. And I know God doesn't want people manipulated in matters of service or giving. 
that is not in keeping with grace giving. Grace giving is voluntary. We are not under law. We are under grace. So giving, whether it be uh, what you do in ministry or what you give in funds, is actually a matter of worship. Worship is always a matter of the heart. True worship is never something you force upon people or a matter of coercion. True worship is never in accordance with legalism or manipulation. Rather, it's always in accordance with grace. So we see that principle there, page 132. Verse 15, he says, uh, so he's reasoning with him now, a little bit of sanctified reasoning, uh, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Uh, Skip that next paragraph. The phrase, a while, is literally an hour. Paul says that perhaps he left for an hour that you might get him back forever. Uh, Next paragraph. It's not too much of a stretch to believe that Philemon earlier had earnestly sought to win his slave Onesimus over to the Lord. Any committed Christian serious about the gospel like Philemon was would do this. He and his family had probably prayed intensely for Onesimus and shared with him as they could. They expressed Christian love to him evangelistically in the context of the day. But all for naught, he had seemingly trampled on all that, ripped them off, and ran off. Well, Paul says, let's step back a minute and consider the bigger picture. Perhaps God in his providence allowed all this to happen to the end that Philemon might receive him back forever. It's a mark of spiritual maturity to see God's providential hand at work in everything. Ultimately, God is sovereign over the circumstances of our lives, including what people do to us. Okay, uh, let's go to the next page. We're going to, uh, by the end, uh, when we get to uh, 8 o'clock, we're going to be done wherever we are. So, page 133. Under the William MacDonald quote, interestingly, Paul uses the word perhaps here, indicating that his Christian humility Uh, prompts his admission that often we don't understand the hidden purposes of God in all that is happening. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps, he says, it's for this. You know, uh, God's got his sovereign reasons, but we don't always understand. So Paul is encouraging Philemon to see this situation through the lens of God's providence. That is that God orders everything in just the right sequence, just the right time. That's providence. And yet admitting that there is some mystery here. And then there is an emphasis on an eternal perspective here. There is the focus of a while, and that is contrasted with forever. It's easy to get focused on the little while that we lose sight of forever. What really matters is that which relates to eternity. What really matters is the salvation of people, as Philemon well knew. Let's come down to verse 16. No longer as a slave, you might receive him back forever. Perhaps this has happened that... Uh, You might receive him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Uh, Note the little word as here. Paul does not say he, he is no longer a slave at all in terms of his legal status. Rather, he is to be received not merely as a slave, but much more than that as a beloved brother. The emphasis is on how Philemon is now to regard Onesimus. There's been a transformation in Onesimus. And now there must be a corresponding change in how Philemon regards him. Uh, This, by the way, is the verse that subtly undermines the institution of slavery. And uh, let's talk about that for just a moment. Let's go to page 134. Uh, We got at the top here. uh, Slavery could be a very bad situation. Uh, You understand that 50% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves at the time. So it was a very common thing. And sometimes it was actually not a bad situation if you had a a good master. In fact, as I say at the top there, some people actually sold themselves into slavery to better their position in life. If you had a good master who treated you well, it could mean security. They take care of you and uh, they would be sensitive to you and uh, they treated you well. So you had those kind of situations too, as well as, you know, bad situations. Next paragraph. Then Christianity came along. It did not approve of the institution of slavery, but neither did it condemn it outright. Instead, the basic principles of Christianity serve to undermine it from the inside out. You see, Philemon is now in his conscience appealed to to, entreat Ones- to to treat Onesimus as a beloved brother. How does that work? Well, brotherly love means you're going to be kind, merciful, gracious, fair, etc. Slavery would still not be the ideal 
But this whole new perspective sets in motion a tide that would eventually overthrow the whole institution of slavery. Uh, Come down to the footnote uh, there in the middle of the page. One of the stated reasons for God's final judgment on Antichrist's kingdom involves the issue of slavery and the mistreatment of men like common property, as we see in Revelation 18.13. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. All are spiritual equals. If a slave could legitimately gain his freedom, then Paul says, go for it. Otherwise, accept your lot in life and use it for the Lord. In the meantime, the gospel served to undermine it from the inside out. There is a great summary statement in terms of this whole uh, institution of slavery. For New Testament believers, there was a higher priority than self and personal rights. Now their lives were to be all for Jesus. And eternity is what really mattered. We see here another great principle. The church is not called to revolt. Uh, We're not called to social or political activism. That doesn't mean as individuals we shouldn't take stands as we have freedom to do so. But it does mean this is not the calling of the church. There will always be social evils. The great concern of the church is the gospel. And wherever the gospel goes, it changes lives and makes more of an impact than any other approach we could ever come up with. We can't improve on God's gospel plan. Want to impact society? Live out the gospel. Give out the gospel. Live out the gospel. That's the calling of the church. Next uh, paragraph. So Philemon was now to see Onesimus not merely as a slave, but as a beloved brother. He was especially beloved to Paul, but now even more so, Uh, For Philemon, bottom of the page, as a converted slave, Onesimus, in terms of the flesh, would now be all the more valuable because he would now have an attitude that serves his master as unto the Lord. Page 135. Let's come down a couple of paragraphs there. So even though it was a very painful ordeal in what happened at the departure of Onesimus, in the providence of God, he worked it out for good. Philemon was not a lost slave, but rather gained a brother. Has not lost a slave, but rather gained a brother, not just for time, but for all eternity. Wow, how is that uh, working out for all things working together for good? The gospel transforms lives and transforms relationships. We now deal with one another in love. We now forgive and restore one another. We are now profitable to each other. We are now in a forever family and will live together forever. We now treat each other in a Christian way because we now belong to the Lord. The Lord changes everything in terms of relationships. Uh, skip that next paragraph. As we now come to the close of the letter, we find that although Paul is graciously appealing to Philemon, yet he makes it clear that forgiveness and restoration is clearly the right thing to do. Yet the tone remains one of gracious appeal as Paul invites Philemon to charge any wrong done by Onesimus to his account. In effect, Paul seeks to remove any and all potential barriers so that they might be restored and Christian fellowship may prevail. Verse 17, if you, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Boy, that's a, that's a strong statement. Receive him as you would me. The word if should be, uh, could be understood as since. Since you count me as a partner, and and they did, they were that close. Uh, Jump down, uh, skip that next paragraph. In verse 12, Paul had said that sending Onesimus back was like sending back his own heart. To receive Onesimus in Paul's mind was like receiving Paul himself. They were just that close. In verses 17 through 19, we have a beautiful illustration of what happens in salvation with our relationship with God. We see the truths of imputation substitution, and reconciliation illustrated. In salvation, God receives you just like he receives his own son. This is truly an amazing reality of grace. Uh, Page 136. Let's uh, unpack it just a little bit. Middle of the page here, page 136. Back in verse 12, Paul appealed to Philemon to receive Onesimus. But now in verse 17, we have an even stronger, straightforward appeal. This is really the purpose of the letter. The previous part of the letter has been laying the groundwork for this direct appeal. Verse 18. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Boy, that's saying something. You understand where this guy was, right? He's in prison. It's not like he's out here just freely making tents as a tent maker. 
uh, what's he, how's he going to bring this, these funds in? And yet he steps out and says, if he's done anything, if he owes you, put it to my account. And he's been appealing. I'm, I'm a prisoner. I'm the aged one, the old one who can't work anymore hardly. Uh, I'm in prison. You know, uh, how unmerciful would it be to say, okay, Paul, I got a large debt. He stole a lot. I'm putting it all on your account. He's probably not going to do that. But Paul sincerely says this. Whatever wrong he has done or whatever he has taken, Paul says, put that on my account. In effect, Paul says, charge that to my account. Put it on my bill. Skip the next uh, paragraph. Again, we have a beautiful picture of what happens in salvation. Pictured is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of imputation. To impute means to put to one's account. And that's what happened on the cross. God put to Jesus' account all of our sin. Christ took our sin debt. He paid the price. Imputation. Jesus gets all of our sin. We get all of his righteousness in faith. Faith makes seals the deal. We receive Christ by faith. But uh, imputation, to put to one's account. At the cross, all our sins were put to Christ's account. He paid our sin debt in full. In salvation, Christ's righteousness is put to our account. Christ took all our sins and we get all his righteousness. You know what we call that? That's a grace deal. You say it's not fair. No, it's not. It's undeserved favor. Uh, That's what it is. It's grace. It's pure grace. Uh, Bottom of the page. Now when Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren, brings our sin up to God, Jesus, as our intercessor, steps in and says, that was charged to my account. I already paid for it. And indeed he did. Page 137. So Satan has nothing to stand on. The Bible says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's always there. Representing us. He's always there for us. He's always there defending us so we are eternally eternally safe. Verse 19. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention. Not to mention. (laughs) Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Well, that's, 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 uh, that's a way of making him think, all right. Uh, note, uh, let's skip that next line there. Uh, scholars think that at this point, Paul may have taken the pen from Timothy and is signing the pledge uh, he is making in verse 18. Uh, this wasn't mere rhetoric with Paul. He, is, he sincerely intends to pay for Onesimus and signs off on it. The picture of substitution, imputation, and reconciliation continues to be drawn out. We speak of salvation being free, and indeed it is free, free to us. That is the very nature of grace. But yet it cost Christ everything. The debt of sin had to be paid. Someone had to pay it. Grace says that Christ paid everything. He paid the full debt. It's free to us because he paid our way. Someone as well said, grace is love that pays a price. We often quote grace, G-R-A-C-E, as being God's riches at Christ's expense. Indeed. I don't agree with all of Luther's theology, but at many points he is quotable, and here is one such place. Uh, He said that what Christ has done for us with God the Father, that St. Paul does also for Onesimus with Philemon. We are all his Onesimuses if we believe. We're all in the position of Onesimus as believers. Uh, Someone has paid our way, paid for our sin debt. That someone is Jesus Christ. Indeed, we as believers are all Onesimuses. We were enslaved to sin. We had nothing by which to pay. But then Jesus interceded on our behalf and paid our sin debt so we might be reconciled to the Father. So Paul was legitimately committing to pay what Onesimus owed, but then he slipped this in. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Not to mention, but I will mention it, right? (laughs) Uh, In effect, Paul is tactfully saying, and he's tactfully, but he's wanting to say it, I could appeal to the fact that you, humanly speaking, uh, that humanly speaking, you, Philemon, also owe me a debt concerning your very salvation. Yet the spirit is that although this is true, Paul will not go there. He mentions it in passing just to remind Philemon, but he does not obligate him. 
Skip the next paragraph. What Onesimus owed was merely physical and temporal. It could be repaid. However, what Philemon owed was spiritual and eternal. How could such a debt ever be repaid? It was a good reminder of what really matters and what was the surpassing value. Page 138. Uh, Skip that first paragraph at the top. We who owe so much should be quick to forgive others who may at some point be indebted to us on a much lesser level. We are all on the grace plan, and it is good to remember that. None of us ever pay our own way. We don't. We're not paying our own way. Uh, We are all the recipients of grace and should therefore be gracious to others as well. Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Paul continues his brotherly appeal. Uh, Next uh, line there under that. Onesimus has been a refreshing blessing to the saints, as seen in verse 7. Now Paul asks him to refresh his heart in this matter of forgiving and restoring Onesimus. Verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So it is actually a matter of obedience, isn't it? Yeah, really you get down to it. He's tactfully, graciously bringing him along. But now here at the end, he's getting a little bit more uh, strong that this really is a matter of obedience. And he says he has confidence in it. Even though Paul is appealing in this way, yet he does have confidence that Philemon will indeed do what is right. Paul knew that at this same time, the more public letter of Colossians would be read to the whole church, which said Colossians 3.13, right? These letters are coming at the same time. Colossians are going to be read to the whole church. And... uh, Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. (laughs) So here's Philemon sitting, listening to this letter from the Apostle Paul. What am I supposed to do with this guy over here? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, If anyone has a complaint against another, and he might have a legitimate complaint against uh, what Onesimus has done, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Boy, no wiggle room. Even though the tone of this letter is that of a personal friend to a close brother in the Lord, yet undergirding it is the truth that forgiveness is the right thing to do. Page 139. Middle of the page. We have now come to the end of the letter. All that remains is parting instructions and greetings, but note these applications. Uh, Bottom of the page there. We are always to have an attitude of grace, giving the situation over to God. But before a relationship can really be restored, there must be repentance on the part of the offender. Uh, This was true concerning the Christ killers at the foot of the cross. Christ asked for their forgiveness, but ultimately that implies that they must repent and receive forgiveness from God. Next page, uh, page 140. Jesus wanted them to be forgiven, but going forward that demanded a response of repentance on their part. That is certainly true. Uh, Next paragraph, think about this in relation to this particular situation here in Philemon. Let's look at what we're talking about here. Philemon is being appealed to, to receive and restore Onesimus. It is clear that Onesimus was repentant. I mean, if he's not, he's not going home, right? He's not going back there. The reason he's going back is he was repentant. So Paul is appealing on behalf of a repentant brother. Even his willingness to come back shows this. His whole attitude is now different. On that basis, true restoration and reconciliation could take place. Now, let's suppose that Onesimus was not willing to return. What then? Would we have the letter of Philemon in in the canon? Uh, I don't think so. Well, Philemon would still need to forgive him, but their relationship would remain unrestored. I share this because sometimes people flagrantly sin against others and then turn right around and say, but you must forgive me. They develop a pattern where they almost use the doctrine of forgiveness as a means of justifying a lack of accountability. And that is an improper and incomplete view. Uh, Jump to the end of that paragraph. Certainly when people are repentant, we need to receive them and restore them appropriately. Forgiveness opens the door to this and desires it. Forgiveness, uh, so much as it depends on you, wants the relationship to be restored. But I would say if there's going to be real reconciliation It does demand repentance on the part of the offender. It takes two to make reconciliation ultimately happen. That's true even with God, right? Uh, God is a forgiving God. Who does he forgive? The repentant. 
Uh, when does reconciliation take place? When somebody comes to repentance. It's based on that. I think there's a principle there. Verse uh, 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Obviously, Paul felt close to Philemon, although he would not prevail upon him concerning Onesimus. Yet he does so re- in regard to asking him to prepare a room for him concerning his anticipated visit. Bottom of the page, Paul at this point was in his first Roman imprisonment and was anticipating that he would shortly be released. Apparently that happened before he was again arrested and then beheaded. <clears throat> okay, um, page 141, top of the page. Paul trusts that through the prayers of Philemon, he will soon be granted uh, to come to him. Uh, granted is a, a form of the word grace. Next uh, paragraph there. Paul now sends greetings from five men who are mentioned in Colossians 4. This is evidence that the letters were written at the same time. However, Tychicus, the deliverer of the letter, is not mentioned, probably because being there in person, he would be able to give his own greeting. So just note them. Philemon 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. 24, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So Paul signs off with this typical grace greeting, wish, prayer. Paul is prayerfully desirous that the grace of Christ would define their Christian walk. That is especially appropriate in view of the contents of the letter. Top of page 142. It has been well pointed out that Christ-like forgiveness is really not possible within the power of the flesh. The flesh cries for vengeance, right? It does. Most natural thing in the world. You do me and I'll do you back. Maybe twice as hard. Uh, The Spirit calls for grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. I love this. In Mark 11, we find Jesus telling his disciples that if they have faith in God, they could remove a mountain. Essentially, all agree that mountain is used figuratively to speak of that which is humanly impossible and requires supernatural intervention. But the interesting thing to note is that thematically in context, Mark then immediately addresses the issue of forgiveness. Uh, Let's jump under the reference there. I submit to you one of the greatest mountains in our Christian lives is often the issue of forgiveness. It requires grace to move it. Only with God's supernatural help can we do it. And yet with Christ, all things are possible. If we look to God in faith, it can happen. Okay, last page, page 143. This is the stuff of supernatural living. That is the experience of the power of God living through you. Or as Paul says in Philemon 6, it is the experiencing and knowing of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. I love that line. Knowing and experiencing every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. May the supernatural reality of forgiveness define our lives as Christ's people. We are the forgiven and we are called to be forgiving. This is a great testimony to the supernatural power of God in our lives. May the reality of our forgiving God constantly be on display in our lives for his glory. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the book of Colossians and the the sister letter here of uh, Philemon. We see how they fit together. Uh, This church was dealing with lots of issues. And certainly this one related to Philemon and the runaway slave Onesimus was was certainly a key issue that they all knew about. And uh, how Paul instructs here as far as how to practically address this whole issue of forgiveness and reconciliation. A lot to learn here. A lot to apply to our lives. And so, Lord, help us to grow in grace as we consider uh, these books. Help us to be faithful to you in in living out what uh, we positionally have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, our wonderful Lord and Savior, who is everything to us. As Paul says, he's uh, in all and he's all in all. And so we thank you for that. Lord, again, we thank you for this week together. Thank you for all the classes, all the teachers. Uh, Continue to bless the fruit of our labors now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming out, everybody. Good to have you here tonight. Yeah, yeah.